So, good morning. Well, last week we started this series called The Lost Stories of Genesis, and if you were raised in the church or you know any of the stories in Genesis, you probably know the ones and are most familiar with the ones that show God at work in very powerful and obvious ways. The story of the creation, Noah and the flood, God telling Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God telling Sarah that she will have a child, even though she is very old, and she laughs. God, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, calling out to Abraham from from heaven and, and actively intervening, to save his son. Quite honestly, we like that kind of God, right? I I, I like that kind of God. God who displays power, God who, who has visible miracles. We like it when God tells people clearly what to do because when God works like that, there's no doubt that God is, is present and active in our world, that God is in control. When we have a decision to make, when we come to a turn in the road or a fork in the path, when we're floundering, when we're in danger, when we're in need, we want God to step in and save the day in some grand and miraculous way or at least clearly tell us what to do. Today, we turn to the story of the matchmaking of Rebecca and Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham and Sarah. In this account, God doesn't miraculously open eyes or call out from heaven. God's actions are not overt and miraculous. On the contrary, God visibly does nothing in this story. Perhaps that's the reason this is one of the lesser-known or lost stories of Genesis. So first, I want to give you a little bit of context for where we come in, and then we'll take a closer look at it together. So in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham to go, Abram at the time, to go from his country and his homeland to the land that God will show him. And further, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and your name will be great, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, the first hurdle is Abraham actually having a child because he and his wife are both very old, very advanced in age. But Sarah does conceive and and have a son, Isaac. Now, the second hurdle is that Isaac is about 40 years old and is still a bachelor. Well, that would be a problem. Isaac needs a wife, and so Abraham sends his servant to his homeland, to Abraham's homeland, back to his homeland, to find a wife that is suitable for Isaac from among the Arameans. Now, in fact, he makes his servant swear with much more than just a pinky swear. This is a swear, the most of oaths where the servant has to actually put his hand under Abraham's thigh and swear a commitment to find a wife for Isaac. That's where we pick up the story today. 
So let me invite you to follow along with me. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and all of his master's best provisions, set out and traveled to Nahor's city in Aram Naharaim. He had the camels kneel down outside the city at the well in the evening when the woman, women came out, come out to draw water. He said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make something good happen for me today. Be loyal to my master Abraham. I will st- here's my plan, he says. Here's my plan, God. I will stand here by the spring while the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. When I say to a young woman, hand me your water jar so that I can drink, and she says to me, drink, and I will give your camel's water too. Now, this is a big deal. I researched. Camels drink like 20 gallons of water at a time. So she was feeding 10 camels 20 gallons of water. But she said, I will give your, water, your camel's water too. May she be the one you've selected for your servant Isaac. In this way, I will know that, that you've been loyal to my master. Even before he'd finished, finished speaking, Rebecca, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, Abram's, Abraham's brother, so basically Abraham's great niece, Rebecca was coming out with a jar, a water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very beautiful and old enough to be married, but, but hadn't known a man intimately. She went down to the spring, filled her water jar, and came back up. The servant ran out to meet her and said, Give me a little sip of water from your jar. She said, Drink, sir. Then she lowered the water jar with her hands and gave him something, some water to drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, till they've had enough to drink. She emptied her water jar quickly into the watering trough, ran to the well again, and I would say again and again and again, to draw water and drew water for all the camels. The man stood gazing at her, wondering silently if the Lord had made his trip successful or not. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Let me uh, invite you, as I do each week, to bow your heads and pray for me in sharing this message with you, and I'll pray for you that God might speak a word to you today. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when our daughter, Shelby Hart, graduated from college, she went to work for Teach for America for two years. And it's there that she met her now husband. Um, 
And when her service was over and his service was over, he was in Teach for America as well, they began to look for a place to kind of settle and, and she was looking, and then they were both looking for jobs. Uh, the Triangle area of North Carolina was one of the areas that they looked at, Raleigh, uh, Durham, Chapel Hill. And so Mike happened to be looking um, uh, for positions and saw this youth director position at a United Methodist Church south of Raleigh. I'm not sure he knew what he was getting her, her into. But anyway, Shelby had always said to us, I am not going into ministry. I am not going into ministry, this is not a family business, and uh, I am not going to follow in your footsteps. Two ministers in one family is quite enough, she said. But the position did intrigue her because she liked working with teenagers and, and she, they did want to live in that area, and so she was interested, and, and within a few weeks she was working there. And it was during the second year of her tenure as a youth director that she told me she felt this nudge to go to seminary. And of course I said, but you're not going into ministry. Um, but she really was struggling. She was wondering, how can, how can I know if God is leading or if it's simply my restlessness to do something different? You see, she's always had FOMO, fear of missing out, and so it's always on to the next thing. And, and she was clear, after all, that she was not going into ministry. So she thought perhaps that this was her aligning her nudge with her own desires. Perhaps she was projecting this onto God because she loves school. She, she could be a, 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 an eternal student and getting a Master of Divinity at Duke was something that was really exciting to her. But how could she know she really wanted a lightning bolt to come down from heaven or the voice of God to call out and speak to her. She wrestled and she wrestled and she finally came to the conclusion that she would go to seminary. And yet she said, why should I go to seminary if I don't know what God wants me to do after that, if I don't know what the end goal is? And I said, I, I really can't help you. All I can say is, is that perhaps even without knowing the last step, knowing the next step is enough. Knowing the next step is enough. So Abraham's servant is sent to find a wife for Isaac. And when he arrives at the well and prays to God, he prays not just for God to show him the wife for Isaac, but specifically how God should answer this prayer for the woman who is to be Isaac's wife to go to the well to draw water and then offer him some water and, and after he's had a sip to, of course, then uh, offer water to all of his ten camels at the same time. No small task. And then this section ends with a servant, it says, gazing at her in silence, still trying to discern whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. You know, even when we think we know, even when we are clear, it is still so difficult to discern if it's really the voice of God that we're hearing, if we're really following God's leading. 
This is no small problem for any of us. And as we struggle to discern, we often fall into one of two different categories. One, we start using God to sanction our desires and even whims. When we choose a direction, are we hearing God or are we aligning the voice of God with our own desires? Are we responding to God's direction or are we lending the authority of God to our own thoughts and impulses? And then the second thing we tend to do sometimes is succumb to a type of agnosticism. And by that I mean we struggle to discern and then we just decide that it's impossible to know for sure and therefore we resort to believing that God is truly not active in our world or in our lives. We believe there is a God, but we do not trust God to lead our lives. We don't trust God with our lives. So what's a person to do? How are we to discern? First of all, take it a step at a time. Think about Shelby. You may not know the last step, but only the next step. Abraham's servant gazed at Rebecca, still trying to discern whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. And then he takes the next step. He asks her about her family, and he learns that she is the granddaughter of Nahor, Abraham's brother. God, it seems, has led her to some of Abraham's kinfolk, which was a good thing. The second thing we can do is to rely on our community. Invite the community of faith into your discernment. Rebecca runs to tell her family, and then her brother runs back to the well and invites Abraham's servant back to his home and his family. And the servant shares with them the mission that he has been on and, and set out to find a wife for Abraham, I mean for Isaac. And he recounts the entire story and his prayer and meeting. And Rebecca's uncle and father seem to think that this is the hand of God as well. In fact, they say, this thing comes from the Lord. Kind of like when we say, this must be a God thing, right? This thing comes from the Lord. She may go with you, they say. Now, interesting, the next morning, uh, Rebecca's mother and brother say, let her stay with us for a while before she goes. And when the servant expresses his desire for her to go immediately, they say, let's ask her. Very unusual to hear that kind of agency given to a woman at that time. But Rebecca says that she will go. Maybe she felt something too. And she returns with the servant to Abraham's home and she meets Isaac. And the story ends this way. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field and looking up he saw camels coming. And Rebecca looked up and when she saw Isaac she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking over there? And he said, it is my master. 
So she took her veil and she covered herself. The servant told Isaac all that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Again, it's rare for scripture to say that. And he loved her. This is a story of people living out their lives in ordinary ways, trying to lean into the future of God's leaning, and yet making it apparent that God's leading is not always easy for us to discern. It seems to me that often, only in retrospect, are we able to boldly affirm the future that God has provided for us. For me at least, I am often most clearly able to see God's faithfulness in the rearview mirror. This story gives us the opportunity to think about faith and how it comes. Scholar and, and author Walter Brueggemann writes, and this is thick, but stick with me, it's really, it's really powerful. In a culture which grasps for visible signs of faith, which is driven towards scientism, and which falls for far too many religious quackeries, this story stands as a foil against easy and mistaken faith. The workings of God are not spectacular, not magical, not oddities. Disclosure of God comes by steady discernment and readiness to trust the resilience that is present in the course of our daily affairs. There is an understatedness about the action of this narrative, but it is not reticent about faith. It is an understatement that is ready to be sustained and profoundly grateful when gifts are given. Shelby went to seminary, graduated a year ago, and is now working in ministry in the same church where she served as youth director. I trust she looks back now and can say about her nudges, this thing came from the Lord. It was a God thing. I trust that she sees the faithfulness of God in retrospect. Yesterday I received this email from Pearl Haddon. Pearl's a, a member of our congregation and, and a wonderful woman. Pearl has been through a lot lately with a long illness of her father and then finally his death. She was sharing with me um, a blog in her email, she was sharing with me a blog from one of her favorite writers, and the blog was about this woman growing up in a small United Methodist congregation in Goshen, Indiana, not even knowing anything about the sermon for today or my sermon title. Pearl forwarded the blog to me and wrote this email. She said it resonated with me and my faith journey in mostly rural, struggling United Methodist churches, bookended by my heart's home at Trinity as a college student 
and now an empty nester. The common thread is the fierce love and hospitality in the face of life's trials. I believe it is the strength of the UMC, that call to love that weaves diverse strangers into a family in a place we call home. It strikes me that as I have searched out the things of faith that I desire, God gives me better things than I even knew to ask. Better things than I even knew to ask. The things that cause pain, the struggles, look so beautiful in the rear view. I'm asking God for the best outcomes I can imagine and trusting God for even better. And when I asked her about sharing this email with you all, and if she knew anything about the sermon title for today, she said, no, it's funny, I've been obsessed with the rearview mirror lately, especially as I process my father's suffering and death through the lens of faith. I am given so much joy. The faith offered to us through the lost story of Genesis is a faith that must be lived. It is a faith for those who are willing to be led, willing to trust. The question is, can you live it? Can you trust it? when you are somewhere in the unknown? Can you take the next step even when you don't know the last? Can you trust in the faithfulness of God knowing that you may only see it in the rearview mirror? Now a little postscript. The Hebrew word for led in scripture is used in this passage and nowhere else in the book of Genesis. It's used in Exodus and in the Psalms to talk about God's guidance in our lives and God leading us through times of stress. Perhaps the best known use of it is in a Psalm that many of us are familiar with, Psalm 23, that affirms God's faithfulness. So I want to close with that as our prayer this morning. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen.